entering the Freedom Hut. Will lockdowns end with Biden's reopened plan? D.C. braces for Inauguration Day and Trump to declassify some Russia collusion documents. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. You're a great American. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Finally, it seems, the obvious is something that the libs, the Democrats will say out loud when it comes to lockdown. Only a few of them, mind you. It's just beginning to happen. But for the first time, you're starting to see articles. You're seeing discussion from politicians like the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, the mayor of Chicago, America's third largest city, Lori Lightfoot. And now a Newsweek piece, COVID lockdowns have no clear benefit versus other voluntary measures. International study shows. So that's something that I've been saying for a long time. But now we can actually talk about it. This is interesting. There is a coincidental timing, it seems. Now, there's also the timing one would expect. The vaccines were approved in December, and now we're getting into middle of January, and things were were halfway into the winter here. So obviously, I I get it. There would be a a more of a light at the end of the tunnel feel. But just yesterday, you had Joe Biden telling everybody about his $1.8 trillion reopen plan to save America. And now you're also seeing the beginnings, the the first uh, the first. Few conversations happening publicly about maybe these lockdowns weren't such a good idea. Oh, really? Just before Inauguration Day, right, right, right when we're about to see a change in government, there's the, the 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 seeds of sanity being planted. I'm very pleased about that. Makes me happy. Um, It should have happened a long time ago. And I also I can't help but take something of of a cynical view about all this, because, for example, the Joe Biden rescue plan that's been talked about here, one point eight trillion dollars. How do you oppose that when what you're going to be opposing is the rescue of America from covid? How can you say there's too much spending going on when a lot of that spending will be money that should have been spent months and months ago, but Nancy Pelosi thwarted it. And the Democrats stopped it. How do you how do you deal with all that? What do you do? Uh, what political opposition will Republicans really be able to put up? I think the answer is not a whole lot. Oh, we're going to start the usual. We're spending too much money conversation. Is that where it's going to go? Fine. We can do that. And it's true. It's not that that's not accurate. But we didn't talk about that for four years. Occasionally, I used to say on this show, I know nobody wants to hear about it, but we're spending too much money as a government. Right. The Treasury was profligate in its spending. And when the good times were happening and they were until covid for three years of Trump's presidency, nobody wanted to hear about it. It was just something that was happening in the background. Be quiet. MAGA. Look at the stock market. That was the attitude. Now. I understand how that happened, but we now also have to face the reality of Democrats coming in with united control of the government and being able to say not only did did Republicans not 
curb their spending, but they have this added mission of saving America from covid, which is going to require a ton of spending. And just like can you see the parallels with 2008, just like when Obama came into office in 2009, he won the 2008 election and it was a trillion dollar stimulus package. Remember that? And that sounded like a lot of money, didn't it? It is a lot of money. We're looking at one point eight trillion right now, basically double. And that's after spending trillions in the last in the last 12 months, in addition to the enormous federal outlay that was planned before covid. So Biden is also being set up here to be the savior in a sense, right? He is the cure. You can almost write the headlines right now. And he's going to be able to get away with the Democrat. But it's not even Biden. He's just a figurehead. The Democrat machinery around him is going to be ramming through whatever they want, all under this aegis of COVID. That's what they'll do. All under this COVID situation. And if you oppose it, they'll say that you don't want America to to be better off and, and you don't want Americans to be taken care of during this terrible and difficult time. So what does that leave us with? Uh, that leaves us with a very challenging case to make here. We're going to have Republicans who have no actual political authority and who are on the precipice of getting steamrolled on the filibuster, which I think is also going to happen. You see, that that, that then becomes the, the tripwire. Biden has this one point eight trillion and you're looking through all this stuff, you know, fifteen dollar minimum wage. It's got all these things in it, right? Fifteen dollar minimum wage, two thousand dollar payments to individuals. You know that there's going to be a whole lot of other stuff in there. There is a whole lot of other stuff in there that has nothing to do with saving America from covid. But it's it's money that Democrats it's your money that Democrats want to spend on favored constituencies. But just like with the financial crisis in 2009, right, a crisis is a is a terrible thing to waste. They are already setting this up. It's a replay to borrow from Yogi Berra. It is deja vu all over again. We're seeing right now the Democrats really it's almost like doing Obama administration 2.0 or Obama administration redux approach to the beginning of the Biden administration. And we're going to have some of the same challenges. You want to oppose the one point eight trillion dollars in spending? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't want two thousand dollar checks in people's hands after this pandemic. Oh, you just want giveaways for corporations. Is that right? You you don't want uh, the money to be spent at the level it is right now because Nancy Pelosi was blocking it for obviously political reasons. Who cares? People still want their money. And if you look at the way they got Obamacare through, which also happened when they had a unified Congress and executive branch under the first Obama, first two years of of Obama's uh, presidency. If you look at what happened, what do we remember about the Obamacare debate? Oh, it was big. It was unwieldy. There was all this stuff in Obamacare. But ultimately, it was you can stay in your parents insurance until you're 26 and pre-existing conditions. That was it. There was all this other stuff. I mean, medical device taxes and exchanges and all these things. And ultimately, Obamacare just created in the individual market winners and losers chosen by the government. Some people were getting less and paying more. Other people were getting more and paying less. It was just shifting around those costs. It did not create a better, cheaper, safer, more effective health care system. That didn't happen. And the way that it expanded most of its coverage was actually through Medicaid which is a 
healthcare welfare system, as we know, that has pretty bad long term healthcare outcomes because a lot of providers and a lot of places won't take it because of the very low reimbursement rates. And that's the only way they keep costs down. So while they say you're covered, your access to care is actually not particularly strong. This is also known as a shortage or what ends up in rationing when there are shortages. So that's all that we talked about, though, during that debate, or I should say that was what the media focus was. Guess what? Right now, they're going to say it's about two thousand dollar checks and a fifteen dollar minimum wage. And and Republicans couldn't stop this even if they wanted to. So what you're going to see is, is Republicans make some noise about it, get get beat up by the Democrats verbally in talking about in the Congress here, they're going to just smack them around, and say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't want checks to Americans. And if they really try to stand fast on this one, if they, if they really try to to block this massive spending package, then what happens is they're they're going to get rid of the filibuster in a way that nobody's even going to be upset about. I mean, yes, the people like me will say, oh, my gosh, this is the strategy and I see what they're doing. But what's really going to happen is that they will they will use this as an opportunity on something popular. This is this is me telling you they are setting that they know what they're doing. Forget about Biden. This is about the Democrat think tanks and activist groups and PACs and their staffs and their little wonks. They understand how to set this up. So that what looks like a the rescue plan for America is just a, a complete open playing field for whatever else Democrats want to do, including perhaps once you get rid of the filibuster, it's going to be gone. So they're daring Republicans. Yeah, try to filibuster. And they're, by the way, Republicans don't have the backbone to do it anyway. And then you add to that the prospect. Remember, two thousand dollar checks, fifteen dollar minimum wage. Those are very popular issues. It is unthinkable malpractice that Mitch McConnell didn't put through the $2,000 checks when he could have before the Georgia Senate election. Terrible malpractice. That's that was old school GOP loser thinking. And now what? People keep asking me, what do we do? I, I want to tell you that there's a better answer as a conservative than uh, than hide under your desk. I want to tell you that brace for impact isn't the real sentiment we should feel. But I see all these things lining up. And when you add to that the the ability to reopen, I mean, I think Biden will figure out a way to mess this up over the long term. I think we'll see the socialist impulse, the collectivism, the ineptitude, the social justice mania, the climate change absurdity that will all factor into this. And, and people will see, oh, my gosh, the people in charge are actually kind of nuts. What they're doing doesn't make sense. But for right now, they are they are teeing all of this up. They are teeing all of this up. And the, the people that think that there's a plan or that there's some and I'm just talking about from the Congress. I'm talking about from the Republican office holders of of whom Donald Trump will not be one in a few days. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I speak the truth. I know. What, what should I do? Should I just tell people happy, happy fantasy stories about the GOPs? We're, we're, we're going to have what? A, a convention of the states will save us. It will not. 
That's not at least I mean, certainly not from the next uh, 12 months of what the Democrats are planning. That's not an option. So I appreciate I'm sure I'll get some links sent to me. What about a convention of the states? Yeah. What about the last time we did that? We didn't do that. And it's not going to happen this time either. But I I just want everyone to see if nothing else. They suppressed the truth about lockdowns. They, They wouldn't discuss the data during a pandemic when people were effectively being imprisoned and isolated in their own homes, separated from their fellow human beings, all the drug abuse, all the missed cancer screenings, all the overdoses, and just the depression, the actual clinical depression that has set in for so many people across the country. That wasn't enough for them to say, this is above politics. Let's have an honest conversation about these lockdowns. Uh, Because this study out of Stanford, which is what Newsweek is citing here, says that you can't tell if there's the the data doesn't show any appreciable benefit of going into extreme lockdown measures over what I've been advocating for all along, which is, you know, try to stay away from big crowds, wash your hands. If you're sick, stay away from people. But they created this this total straw man of the covid denialist. Oh, if you if you don't think that every two weeks we should add some absurd addition to the lockdown strategy well now we're going to close restaurants outdoor too now we're going to add masks outdoor too or they just kept doing this ratcheting it up if if you pointed out that this was absurd it wasn't going to help anybody what was their response their response was you're a covid denialist you know what the data shows the people who were saying that were wrong and if you just think through this on your own you recognize of course that stuff didn't make a difference Because the disease wasn't really spreading outdoors in any significant way, for example, because even with lockdowns, people are having to interact enough that the virus is still spreading. And and initially, when we were doing this, it was all about shutting down the virus for a a short period of time, shutting down the spread, not entirely, of course, for a short period of time to allow us to get medical capacity. And then it transitioned into, no, we can stop this. No, we can't. If, if you if you pull down, you know, what, what would have been 20 percent of cases, let's say, or 30 percent of cases over a two week period. But then you extend what you're doing over nine months, 12 months. You end up at rough at, at basically the same number. That's the point. It doesn't really change the eventual outcome here, which is what we're seeing all around the country. But they, they are just beginning to talk about it now, because here's what I think will happen. Uh, they're going to hold out the reopen as well. They're going to leverage reopen as a means of silencing political dissent from people like me who are going to point to all the pork and all the special interest stuff and all the social justice warrior nonsense that's going to be contained in the uh, in the uh, save us package that Biden is putting out there. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. But they need about we need about 400 billion in funding from Congress to make all of what I just said happen. It's a great deal, but I'm convinced we're ready to get this done. The very health of our nation is at stake. Our rescue plan also includes immediate relief to Americans hardest hit and most in need. We will finish the job of getting a total of two thousand dollars in cash relief to people who need it the most. The $600 already appropriated is simply not enough. We just have to choose between paying rent and putting food on the table. 
Even for those who've kept their jobs, these checks are really important. You see, if you're an American worker making $40,000 a year with less than $400 in savings, maybe you've lost hours or maybe you're doing fewer shifts driving a truck or caring for the kids or the elderly. You're out there putting your life on the line to work during this pandemic and worried every week that you get sick, lose your job or worse. $2,000 is going to go a long way to ease that pain. $400 billion to combat the pandemic with money to accelerate the vaccine deployment. $350 billion for state and local governments that have budget shortfalls. That's right. The uh, blue cities that excessively shut down out of covid panic and also because it was bad for the economy and bad for trump that was there were political calculations made here no question uh 350 billion dollars going to them that that covers a lot of budget shortfalls and what this means is that the taxpayer you those of you who live in redder states or places that didn't really lock down uh you are now subsidizing the lockdown cities that's what's happening so as I've been telling you all along, if you think, oh, it's not that bad in my area, so this is more of a problem for the big cities or something. Nope. If you live in North Dakota, your federal income taxes now are going to pay for firefighters and uh, and teachers unions and you name it, you know, sanitation workers in Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C. That's what this is. And Pelosi's gambit as grotesque and uh, and really just nasty as the whole thing was to hold up all this aid. I tell you the truth, and that means I'm telling you that worked. Worked. The same way that, you know, that, that Democrats complained so much about the, the gamble that the uh, Republicans took by not putting forward, uh, putting through, I should say, Merrick Garland for a vote in the Senate. And then Trump won in 2016. Nancy Pelosi held up, held up aid. The media did her bidding. It was terrible. People suffered. But now guess what? Democrats get to be get to be the the great distributor of goodies to the American people. This is this is going to be tough. This is going to be tough. I, I don't mean that part is is tough. I mean, how we actually slow down the other aspects of the Democrat agenda without looking like we're saying, no, don't give the American people aid and assistance. This is how they're doing it. They tie these things together. And increasingly what you'll see and the media will play a huge role in this is taking the Biden agenda, the whole legislative agenda, and making it seem like it's running in parallel. It's running in parallel with the reopen. So if you oppose the Biden agenda, aren't you really just opposing the reopen? Because come on, they're getting money out there. They're getting going. We are heading into the toughest, the toughest time for American political opposition to the, the Democrat left in a decade. That's what's happening right now. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The gaslighting over BLM is going to get worse and worse right now. They're going to completely change the history of that movement. And I remember it well because... BLM was used as and remember, there's some complexities here. There's actual BLM protests. There's Antifa taking it upon themselves to act on behalf of BLM, which they were doing constantly. Uh, and and then there's just the looting and riots that would occur after a BLM protest, but in the name of BLM. So there's 
There's these different components, but overall, if we're referring to the movement of Black Lives Matter, it resulted in a lot of destruction in American cities. It resulted in dozens of deaths. And if you look at the overall homicide rates in major American cities, they've, as a percentage, gone up dramatically. They will just be prepared for this. The Democrats will tell you, oh, homicide is still at a at a you know, 10 year low in the country or whatever it may be. Overall, that is true. The trajectory has been going down for a long time, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because we're always told that if only we got rid of more, if only we harass lawful gun owners more, the crime rate wouldn't be so terrible. But meanwhile, there are more and more guns in people's hands over the last 20 years. You've got over 300 million people who say, fuck, it's 500 million, but hundreds of millions of, of legal firearms in Americans' hands. And yet the crime rate had been steadily going down for the last, it's really longer the last 20 years. Crime overall has been going down for decades. But this year there is a jump up. This year you're seeing cities like New York and Boston and Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know all the numbers offhand, but you know, you're talking about 50 to 100% increases in shootings in some of these cities. Really bad year to year increase. And that's a result of the change in police tactics from BLM. And I'm sorry, change in police tactics from BLM's demands that there be less aggressive policing. Uh, and that's and, and also people not wanting to lose their jobs, their livelihoods, their pensions because they become a target of a, a BLM protest or it becomes one of these cases. You saw this in Philadelphia. I mean, there was a guy who over the summer ran at a police officer with a knife drawn, screaming, clearly deranged. And, you know, yes, the guy's mentally disturbed. It's a, it's a tragic situation, but the cop does not have an obligation to get stabbed in the face before he draws and uses his weapon. And this is all on video. We all saw it. They made an issue of that case. Well, if you're a police officer and you see that, you say to yourself, well, what exactly am I supposed to do? And now when you're driving in your patrol car, you don't you see something going on down that proverbial dark alley. Right. You see something happening. You know, you just keep going unless you get a call that you can't ignore. You're you're just going to focus on other things. Well, that makes everybody in the community less safe. That makes everybody more subject to uh, random and, and wanton violence. But there's a big, big effort underway right now to make sure that. The right is going to be treated like the exclusive, the exclusive uh, perpetrator of political violence. It's a, it's, a, it's a narrative they're trying to build right now. That's what they're doing. Uh, you have the AG for D.C., Carl uh, Racine, saying this about BLM protests. Now, by the way, we shouldn't be comparing BLM protests with Capitol riots. That's true. Or with the Capitol riot, I should say. We should not compare those things. We should compare the hundreds of BLM riots with the Capitol riots. Or riot. See, isn't that important? Plural versus, uh, versus singular. But we should compare what happened in Kenosha. We should compare what happened in Minneapolis. We should compare those incidents with Capitol Hill. And then I think that's a that's a much more apples to apples comparison. But anyway, here's what the uh, District of Columbia AG has to say about a place six in regards to 
Black Lives Matter and the comparison to an attempt of insurrection at the Capitol, I think it speaks for itself. When people like General Mattis make clear that what this was was an attempted insurrection into our democratic ways, we know quite easily that the Black Lives Matter protest was unbelievably different. And by the way, do not let anyone, including Ken Cuccinelli or other elected officials, tell you that Democratic elected people did not condemn the violence that occurred during the summer protests. They always did. I always did. I got to tell you, though, trying to overturn an election with violence, including violence on police officers, is something very, very different. And they should be held to account for their lies. Just not true that they all condemned the violence of BLM. It's just not true. We would hear not not only did they not condemn the violence, but they also created this special epidemiological loophole for BLM to continue to do the protest that it was doing for BLM to engage in this in this behavior while we are supposed to all be avoiding crowds and gatherings. Oh, it's it's about saving black lives, though. They told us that was the line. Therefore, it's it's actually protecting life to have massive crowds gathered. Now, you've heard me say many times. The virus doesn't really spread outdoors, according to the actual science. But I also don't think if you're gathered in a tightly packed crowd of a thousand people screaming for hours on end, I mean, it it might the virus might spread a little bit there. I think that's fair to say walking down the street alone. No, but if you are all together in in a very dense crowd, that may change. Anyway, they created a, a special exception for that. But the Democrats mobilized with this. The Democrats mobilized their base in the election year. As I said, they were all along. This was effective for them. The people who were telling you that everything was fine, that Trump had this under control, that there was a plan, they were wrong. They were wrong about the preparations for the election beforehand with regard to challenging all these, the way way they were switching the deadlines and and mail-in ballot procedures and all this The Trump campaign did did not get ahead of that issue. And I've spoken to people who are on the campaign about this. Uh, The Trump campaign didn't get ahead of that. The uh, the messaging around BLM and Antifa was not strong enough. The president kept tweeting out law and order. It was insufficient. Obviously, I mean, you have the president of the United States who's supposed to be law and order guy. And you had riots and and mayhem from Democrats for basically the whole summer. This was this was not a good look, as they say. This did not work out well. But now you're going to see the... So, so look, I, I want us to understand what happened so we can do better going forward. I think that's necessary. I think that's helpful for us. But we can also look at what they're, what they're going to do now and understand their plan and rewriting the history of Black Lives Matter and making... I mean, the Capitol Hill riot, I'm seeing today, they're, they're saying that there were guys who were, wanted to break in there and, and they, they were going to take uh, members of Congress hostage or something. And at least in one case, they're referring to somebody who ran in there with like a like a, a beaver pelt on his head and all painted up, who's also told authorities since he's been in custody that he thinks he's a member of an alien race. I'm being serious. I mean, this is a guy who's who's clearly has has like mental illness problems, serious ones. 
Uh, but but you and I, because we voted for Trump, we're responsible for for this guy. Why? I have nothing to do with this person. I don't support him. I think the I think the person needs needs honest and serious psychiatric assistance. And then there's also this. Uh, so so there's that you're being told, oh, there that this was this was the equivalent of an armed insurrection to overthrow the United States government. That's the way the media is reporting on this. When we've all seen that, yes, there somebody they they killed a police officer. They were in a fight that they shouldn't have been in. They caused a fight and they attacked cops. And you shouldn't do this. And this is wrong. I don't think they intended to kill that officer with the with the fire. I mean, um, with the fire extinguisher. But they did. And they have to be held fully accountable. But there are also gradations here. There are levels that we have to take into account. What's the difference between a riot and the kind of insurrection that the media is talking about right now for obvious political purposes. I mean, you could have had people and God forbid, and, and everyone should be peaceful. And I, I don't think I don't think uh, the any any protests right now before the inauguration, it, it doesn't I don't think it serves anyone's purpose for the movement. I really don't. I, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, peaceful protests. Fine. I but I, I just would prefer personally that everything just right now we calm down. The Biden administration's coming into power. Let's let that let's let the peaceful transfer happen. And then we can start having bigger demonstrations, peaceful, law abiding ones about what's going on. And let's also be honest, the Democrats won't care and the media won't cover it. And we don't have Trump anymore at the head of the movement. So, you know, this is I don't know. I, I hope everyone appreciates this show is like reality hour. I, I'm seeing some of what other conservatives are putting out there right now, and they're just, I don't really know. And a lot of people, a lot of people got very far just just grabbing on to the Trumpster. Oh, as long as I talk about how awesome Trump is, everybody will like me and listen to me or, or watch me or whatever. OK, well, we can't, that, that doesn't work anymore. That's not going to happen. Now, I think Trump is going to continue to have a voice once he leaves office and will play a role in the movement. How big a role? I don't know. But we got to tend to what's going on, what's going on right now. Um, oh, I was talking about the layers of of analysis here. We'd have to apply to the Capitol Hill, what they're calling the insurrection. Insurrection in other countries would involve sending people with you know, automatic weapons to overtake with force and to hold and to say we're in charge now and we're the government. Now, that's that's really what an insurrection is. So. That's that's completely to think that what happened at Capitol Hill rises to that level, which is how they're treating it. That's that's just not honest analysis of the situation. There, there was no reality. There was no future in which they were going to hold the Capitol and hold the government. A lot of the people in there were just running around like idiots, taking selfies. And, you know, they thought that this was some kind of a I, I don't I don't even know. Honestly, what they were thinking is is a little bit. Uh, beyond me, not the people outside who are holding up placards and protesting and saying that they're concerned and they feel the election was stolen. And then I totally get where they're coming from. But running around inside the Capitol, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and it's, it's a lot worse than it doesn't make sense to me. But you know what I'm saying? I, I can't even I can't even put my mind in a place where I could see how that decision would be made. But then there's also the first person that we've seen here who is in agent uh, provocateur, uh, somebody who is clearly a BLM left wing activist who was encouraging people inside the Capitol uh, to engage in this kind of behavior. 
He's basically saying, yeah, this is great. Let's go riot. You know, he's been on CNN before, too. There's federal charges now filed against the guy. So he, he was there were leftists. There were leftists throwing gasoline on the fire. There were a lot of a lot of MAGA people, though, a lot of Trump supporters. That's also true. But the, we have at least one leftist now that the Department of Justice has said was in there exacerbating things and making things worse. And they're, they're bringing serious, serious charges against him. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. My office was tasked with the responsibility of launching a civil investigation into the New York City Police Department's response to these protests. What we found was an egregious abuse of police power, rampant excessive use of force and leadership unable and unwilling to stop it. There you have the attorney general for New York, Leticia James, who has said that she's going to use her. She's been open about it, use her uh, prosecutorial powers to go after Trump and not just while he's in office. Get ready for that. She's uh, calling out the NYPD. That's that's the problem. You see, this, this is very deeply ingrained in the Democrat left's mindset that the issue with with violence in cities and the, and the and the problem with these protests that turned into riots is the cops. The real problem is the cops. This is going to be commonplace. You're going to hear this uh, all the way from the very top. They'll always say this. They'll do this, this, this throat clearing about, you know, or oh, we, we respect our, you know, Joe Biden will say, oh, we respect our law enforcement officers, comma. But there's so much racism with cops and cops are so racist and they're bad and we need to stop them from being such racists. So, well, if, if cops are so bad and so racist, how are you? Well, why, why would you respect them, Joe Biden? Why would you think that they deserve the benefit of the doubt for doing what's a very difficult and even dangerous job. But this is this is just that's just to cover themselves so that some people go, well, I guess the, the Democrats don't really they're not really willing to. And look, when I say they hate the cops, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, they're all going to call them. First of all, they've all got security details. Start with that. They've all they've all got personal police. But even beyond that, yeah, of course, they'd call the cops the moment that somebody you know, somebody's baseball fell on Nancy's uh, petunias in her backyard of her mansion in San Francisco. They don't hate cops as in they don't want to use the cops, but they will pretend they will placate that sentiment that the police are the real problem. And and this is why you've got Leticia James, the attorney general for New York State, saying, oh, yeah, the, the issue here is that the NYPD, they were really out of line. They were really doing bad stuff. Uh, that's interesting because I remember when I was uh, talking to people who work in my building. I live in a, a tall apartment building in New York City, and there's a staff that works in the building, and there was some at the front desk, and uh, they were worried about what would happen if somebody came in and smashed up the smashed up the lobby. It's all glass. Smashed up the lobby and started smash. You know what do they do? This was on the purge night when they were smashing windows across the street. So this isn't some some irrational fear to have when there's mobs of people running through the streets freely and breaking stores and breaking store windows and stealing stuff, including on Fifth Avenue in one of the most visible and uh, and high end shopping districts in the whole world. It, it's understandable why you'd be concerned. Who's going to come and help me if this mob decides that they want to start going after private homes? Who's going to who's going to help me if the mob decides that they they don't like the look on my face and they're going to this is oh but the cops were the problem 
that night, right? The cops were the problem for the riots that kept happening and happening and happening. Did Democrats ever call for it to stop? Do you remember that? Do you remember a single prominent Democrat coming forward and saying, you're really, the BLM movement's really about police reform and and making this a better country, so we have to absolutely stop all acts of destruction and, and criminal behavior. Do you remember that speech? Well, I know you don't because it didn't happen. There was no Democrat who was making that point. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think Joe Biden should pardon Trump as Ford did Nixon? I don't know. He should at least he should consider it. Now, I don't know whether Donald Trump, he's not a genius, but he might figure out that if he accepts a pardon, that's an admission of guilt. Uh, the United States Supreme Court has said. So I don't know that he would accept a pardon. But as part of healing the country and getting us to a place where we can focus on things that are going to matter over the next four years, I think Joe Biden's going to have to at least think about that. Joe Biden pardoning Trump for what exactly? Trump wouldn't accept it because the only thing that they believe at this point and after all the fake charges and we'll talk in a second about the declassifying of documents that that's expected to happen uh, today or, or imminently the fake charges out there uh, that they used over the years, the Russia collusion and treason and all this stuff. Now they're going to get them on incitement to violence. Going to be pretty tough, going to be pretty tough to convince a fair-minded jury. I mean, all you need is one person who's basically a Republican because it would become very political. Any jury pool would be inherently tainted, right? All you need, though, is one Republican on a jury. You just need one to hear, hmm, he said, go be peaceful at the Capitol and have your voices heard, and a bunch of people decided to destroy and destroy things and attack cops. That's not on him, all right? So saying that he won the election by a landslide might be uh, improper and you know, not not accurate, not true. But we're talking about incitement to insurrection. We're not talking about some BSing about an election that he should have been. He sh- should have been more clear on exactly where where we had proof and what proof we had. Uh, so I, I don't think that you'd be able to get a conviction. So that means that that Donald Trump would not accept. Why would you accept a pardon for a conviction? I'm sorry, a pardon for a crime that you had not committed. I don't think that will happen. It's fascinating to me that James Comey is still elevated by the media. I mean, it's not surprising, but you you have to dig into this for a second. Here's a guy who acted like a a scorned high school teenager when he was fired by Trump and then released documents of his own his own memos to the New York Times. But he he outmaneuvered Trump on getting the special counsel done. This is the truth. I know now now we get to, now we get to finally say about the 4D chess and all that stuff. What's true? What's not? Where, where was Trump amazing? Trump was amazing on saying things that other people were unwilling to say that were true. Trump was amazing on fighting the media and driving them completely insane and making them make make utter buffoons of themselves. Right. There was so much. And also just understanding this whole piece of America Right. Seventy five million Trump voters the last time around. But understanding what they're frustrated about, why they're not getting a fair deal and, and what could be done, what could be done by the government to make things better. So I, I understand all the most. Uh, uh, the, the, the biggest assets that Trump brings to bear, 
Um, but on the whole, oh, he's for DHS. This is what I was saying. We weren't allowed to, from his own team, try to make it better. We weren't allowed to do it. People didn't want to hear it. You ha- had to just be out there saying everything was amazing. You know, had to be, uh, you know, it's, it's like we were all Trump's therapist. Oh, you're doing great. Everything's great. You're doing a fantastic job, you know. Go easier on yourself because everything's great. Um, but on the special counsel and, and how that went down, obviously, uh, James Comey was able to do real harm to the administration. It was it was deeply harmful to have the the special counsel investigating them. It was more challenging than I think a lot of people realize because I, I spoke to individuals who had to get lawyers and they were really worried about uh, getting the Papadopoulos treatment where they're just coming after you. They have remember the federal government, aid, uh, federal government prosecutors in this case had endless resources, endless resources to come after whoever they wanted to. Basically, right? they spent 40 million dollars. I mean, how, how many people have one hundred thousand dollars of their own to mount a legal defense? Not very many. Uh, so they've got 40 million dollars at their disposal. The, those lawyers get paid. Those prosecutors, the special counsel get paid whether they win or lose. Doesn't matter really to them. And your life is on the line, essentially. And certainly your reputation and your freedom are, uh, as well as your finances, your life savings. And uh, the, the truth is they were, they were using the process as a weapon in an effective way. They were using the process as a weapon in a way that we have to be aware of uh, because it, it largely worked. It was, uh, it was mostly... Um, Mostly effective. Now, they didn't get what they wanted in the end, which was the impeachment and removal of Trump from office using the special counsel report as a roadmap. But as I've told you, I think that's because Attorney General Barr saw what they were trying to do and headed them off at the pass, which is also why I refused to join the AG Barr was a sellout and a deep state fake and all the stuff that people were saying about that. I don't think that was fair. People are entitled to their opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think that was fair. Uh, I don't think that was fair to somebody that did a lot for the administration and understands the threat from the left and would and would speak openly about what the left is doing to this country. Now we're going to get even more information, but there's a there's a frustration, a, a clear frustration that I have around this because Trump is going to declassify. I spoke to the president about declassifying and told him that he should in 2018, I think it was. Uh, two, two years and change ago, I was in the Oval Office with the president. It was before I was doing an interview with him. And I was like, sir, you're going to declassify, right? No, nah. nope, didn't declassify. And I think that there's going to be there. They're going to release documents now. That's that's at least what the reporting is saying. OK, so what are we going to do with it now? What you're going to declassify a whole bunch of stuff about Russia collusion. So we're going to find out that Hillary Clinton was a fraud in this whole thing, and she knew what was going on, that she used the Russia collusion scam to try to offset her very real email scam, which was not going away, the, the, the email crisis for her for the election, um, and, and that this was all manufactured by the DNC, and Christopher Steele has ties to you know Fiona Hill, and oh, that's coming out, and there's all, all these different moving pieces. I'm glad that we'll get Uh, some truth and transparency on this. And I know there is still a Durham probe. There is still a special counsel that could do something, but I think it's unrealistic to believe that this is somehow going to be so much better 
this is going to be so much better now. Um, you know, uh, we are going into a Biden administration. They're going to be in charge of the government. And we're going to know more of the truth of Russia collusion. And then what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? You know, this is this is where we are. I've uh, I wanted this to get out two years ago. I said, you know, release information now. And nope, oh, no, you know, trust uh, trust in the 4D chess. That's what we were told. Well, yeah, that's not 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 really the plan that it needed to be. I've also been very, very clear with you about how the the purge of Trump from Twitter uh, was just the beginning of a longer term effort. Uh, You have Jack Dorsey. This is from a Twitter, a Twitter insider recording Jack Dorsey talking about the political censorship that we should all be expecting going forward. So, as I've said, they, they want us all to concede on this stuff. Oh, Trump's a clear and present danger. We need the right to make political determinations about whether someone's just too dangerous to public discourse to kick them off of social media platforms. But. We've been led to believe that that stops when Biden comes into office and that everything will calm down. No, no. Why would they do that? They, they like this. This is enormously helpful to them. Um, here is. Jack Dorsey himself telling everybody this is a bigger plan, folks. Play 15. You know, we, we are focused on one account right now, but this is going to be much bigger than just one account. And it's going to go on for much longer than just this day, this week, the next few weeks. It's going to go on beyond the inauguration. We have to expect that. We have to be ready for that. So the focus is certainly on this account and um, how it ties to real world violence. But also, we need to think much longer term around how these dynamics play out over time. Um, I don't believe this is going away anytime soon. And the moves that we're making today uh, around uh, QAnon, for instance, is one such example of a much broader approach um, that we should be looking at um, and and going deeper on. So um, the team has a lot of work and a lot of focus on this particular issue. But we also need to give them the space and the support to focus on the, the much bigger picture um, because it is, it is not going away. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is extremely divided. Um, our platform is uh, showing that uh, every single day. And our role is to protect the integrity of that conversation uh, and do what we can to make sure that no one is being harmed uh, based off that. And, and that is the focus and um, that is the, the color we want to provide. Protect the integrity of the conversation. Maybe we could take that a little more seriously from the CEO of one of the biggest social media platforms on the planet. Maybe we could listen to him without wanting to just either guffaw in laughter or, or cry at the absurdity of this. If they hadn't allowed the, the, the president of the United States to be called a traitor and a Russian asset for four years. I mean, they've done it all four years. And to lie and lie endlessly and and peddle false information using platforms like Twitter about Russia collusion. Maybe then we could listen to this and not feel like it was such an obvious and and transparent fraud. Um, But this is this is the future. And I I do believe it's a wake up call to a lot of people 
a, a lot of conservatives out there that we need. Uh, some of us have been calling for this for a long time, and we, we need to start setting up more infrastructure. We need an entire uh information ecosystem that is a business it has to be a business it can't be just charities it can't be sending more checks to the heritage foundation it has to be a functioning standalone ecosystem of with with, with profit and loss and and you know growth strategy we got to have the the media component of it you have to have uh sales and advertising the actual digital infrastructure and and this this all needs to happen because otherwise you're going to be at weirdo Jack Dorsey's mercy. That's where this is all heading. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I wonder if you have thought through kind of. How Republicans begin what someone on my team earlier today called debathification yeah. of the Republican Party. And I wonder if Liz Cheney, you know, her <laughs> statement being the thing that Republicans used, I mean, the Democrats used, sorry, to explain why they needed to impeach Donald Trump. Is there a little wing of the Republican Party that you think can do this sort of debathification of the party? And can it work at this point? interesting debathification refers to uh, removing bath party officials from the government and military infrastructure in iraq post u.s invasion 2003 uh msnbc's joy reed seems to think that debathification worked out well when it did not it led to continued long-standing insurgency a tremendous amount of violence but she wants debathification of the gop Oh, this also makes me think to somebody else who knows quite a bit about what happened in Iraq. My friend Brandon Webb joins us right now. He is a former Navy SEAL and best-selling author. You can also check out uh, his latest and his team's latest at softrep.com. Brandon, good to see you. Uh, good to see you, Buck. Uh, so we have some really overheated political rhetoric going on right now. Tell me about about what your thoughts are with with all these Many, many thousands of National Guard troops who are I, I think that they're, they're carrying like six full mags. And I mean, they, they they're armed up for looks like counterinsurgency operations. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I've never to be honest, I've never felt so close to the brink of potential civil war in America. I, I would never thought I would even utter those words. The The thing that's you know, as a former SEAL and, and a combat veteran that I find, um, I find it a little funny that, you know, Pelosi and gang feel comfortable calling essentially what are reservists. So these are kids that are in school, um, you know, part-time army, and they're being summoned to uh, the Capitol. Probably most of them never had any combat experience or combat service. So these are like young kids. And are they really going to be pitted against armed, angry Americans in the Capitol? I, I just like I can't see a 19 year old kid really drawing down uh, with an M4 assault rifle on a fellow American. So I, I, I just see that, you know, that what the Democrats are doing is just throwing gas on the fire and just making things worse. Like, let's let's just let the process run its course. Um, but, you know, pushing that all these National Guard and obviously, you know, now the, you know, Biden has the most of the press behind him. 
um, at least the liberal media, and they're just pushing this in the headlines to kind of thinking that this is going to kind of quell the situation. And it's just not the case. Like these, these are like young kids. Yeah. Well, and, and they're, they're showing all these photos of them sleeping on the marble floors of the United States Capitol. And, and, and they're, they're, you know, everyone has to remember DC already has a tremendous security presence. I mean, you've got all the different yeah. that the presence of all the different federal law enforcement agencies, you know, Secret Service and and people that work, uh, you know, at, at, at the FBI. And I mean, they've all got fully automatic weapons and all kinds of tactical gear. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then you add well, to this uh, Metro Police and everything else. We, we need what is it, 9,000 or something National Guardsmen deployed in D.C. right now? It, it feels like, what are they What are they really prepared for? Because they're not there. They're not looking like they're prepared for crowd control, Brandon. That, that's the part of this that I think is yep. some people so uneasy. No, it's the summoning the National Guard to D.C. is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Like, if you really want to be prepared, like, send in the, the, the Ranger Battalion. You know, like, that's like a serious... Um, you know, threat response, but it's just, again, it's like, I, I, I feel like really we're, you know, we're at the point where, you know, the things that the Democrats are doing just to kind of egg, egg people on. I just don't, I don't understand like why they're escalating this to, to a certain level when, when it should be about de-escalate, de-escalization and, and getting back to, you know, the, what the founding fathers wanted us to do is like a government elected by the people for the people. Um, but I just, it's a, it's an interesting time. And like I said, I have a lot of friends who are nervous, um, right, rightfully so. I, I think that a lot of Americans are fed up. They're fed up with the electoral process. You know, we're, we're essentially in the dark ages. Like we might as well just, you know, be, be an athlete. African Republic, right? Like we're counting ballots by hand. This is, this is like 2021. We should be voting on cell phones. Um, you know, it's just, and again, we have this elect electoral process that delivers us really two poor choices every four years. So, so, so Brandon, before we let, before we let you go, uh, just tell everybody what you're, what you're working on right now. Cause we haven't heard from you in a while. I know you got some things in the pipeline. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm still running softrep.com. Uh, we started a mastermind group for uh, professionals uh, that I'm I'm actually leading myself. We call it the Red Circle Mastermind. I'm um, excited about that. It, it's essentially a place where, where people uh, we can create accountability together and and drive people towards towards their goals. And I think 2021 is is going to be a, a challenging year, but there's a lot of opportunities on the horizon. Um, and if anyone wants to check that out, that that's just my last name, web.team, um, web.team.com. And, and that'll throw you right into the, the mastermind group. But that, that's kind of what I'm up to right now. What, real quick, what's a mastermind group? Uh, it, essentially, um, you could think of it as a, a group of professionals like you are who you hang out with. So we're, I'm building this group of professionals that want to hold themselves accountable, set purpose, um, and goals in their life and have a, a system and an environment that, that creates accountability uh, for that. So, All right. Well, Brandon, thanks for your service Maybe. and your expertise, my friend. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, you too, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's not going to stop with Trump. You know that. 
there are other people they want to make an example of. I'm talking about elected officials. They want to uh, humiliate them. They want to get rid of them. If you have been effective at all in opposition to the Democrat agenda, you're now a, a target for Democrats to expel you, to override the will of those voters. And it starts with things like calls for censorship. You remember uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, a, a severe mediocrity, uh, and that's probably too, too kind. She, she was one who, uh, look, she's, she'll say whatever she has to say, whatever she has to say, but I guess that's true of a lot of politicians. But she wants a, a censure motion for Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. Play 14. President Trump was not the only person egging on um, supporters or pushing the election lie. He had two lieutenants in the Senate leading the charge on the election fraud lie, and that was Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. Do you think they should face consequences? I do. And I think we should consider a censure motion for both of them. Uh, again, to continue the lie that the Electoral College votes shouldn't have been counted, that some extrajudicious review was necessary after it had been through the courts, certified by states. This is a state's rights issue. Uh, I, I think it was uh, extremely irresponsible. And I think the appropriate response would be a censure motion. Censure motion. You think they're going to leave it there? No, of course not. Have there been any censure motions for uh, Democrat officials who push the Russia collusion hoax? You'll notice there's a very important difference you see here in the timelines. The uh, the left lied about Trump not winning the 2016 election for for, for his entire presidency. They've never been willing to admit that that was a lie. They, they don't admit that that was all a fraud. Uh, and they've they faced no consequences for it whatsoever through any process or anything else. Right. They've just maybe some people who pay attention to the public realize that these people are liars and they're disgraceful. But there there's no actions taken against them. And in, in, in any case, they won the 2016 election, I mean, 2020 election against Trump. So they feel like this was a win for them. They feel like this was a good a good thing. Well, all right. Now we see that they want to take this and. They, they want us to forget about the fact that re- Republicans had questions about an election and Trump supporters and voters and the GOP had questions about an election that lasted essentially until the votes were counted in the uh, in the Congress. And of course, there was the riot. The riot was awful. Uh, but since then, I mean, the GOP said, all right, I mean, it's this is done. Trump has said it ever. This is Joe Biden's going to be the president. Democrats, yes, I understand they accepted through the process that Trump was going to be the president, but then they created an end run on that process with the FBI investigation, Crossfire Hurricane and the special counsel and the entire media apparatus lying about the president as a traitor. And they actually took this to the courts. I mean, they, they took this to they, they took this all the way. They went to the FISA court and then they went all the way with the special counsel. No accountability for that whatsoever. And they that was the whole thing was a lie. Trump and the Trump campaign had nothing to do with Russia. Russia didn't change the election outcome, although 60 to 70 percent of Democrats thought Russia actually changed the numbers that the voting machines were counting. Just to get just to give you a sense of of how much uh, there was there. So. It's it's frustrating as as all heck to see right now that uh, they're, they're claiming that this is some unprecedented, unprecedented threat to our, to our election integrity by 
challenging or by questioning the outcome of the election through the courts, not talking about the riot, I'm talking about through the courts, when what the Democrats did was they realized they couldn't win this thing through the actual process. So they tried to create some separate, you know, torpedo the Trump presidency process by uh, running with this Russia collusion lie and using the deep state and the secretiveness of the FISA courts to get all this stuff up and running and then to filter through the media to use the media as a megaphone to give credibility to the lie. That's what they did. Now you have really extreme stuff being said here um, by a whole lot, a whole lot of people on the left. And we had uh, Kirsten Gillibrand saying that we should have a vote of censure, but Ayanna Presley, member of the so-called squad, uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, she wants people who were supporting Trump or who were questioning the election. She wants them gone. Play four. So the first step is impeach and remove, which is also about ensuring that he can be so that he is barred from running for public office again. The second is to expel, to expel those members who have aided and abetted and been complicit in the cruelty, the corruption and the criminality of this administration who perpetuated the big lie. Complicit in the administration. They must be must be expelled. Expelled, you see. Uh, for their perpetuation of the big lie. Uh, Democrats lied about the president's Russia collusion ties for four years, and they still do. Okay, so I really don't want to be lectured by them about that. The only thing that they are, the only thing that, that needs condemnation here in a, in a clear and full-throated sense uh, that, that is of real concern is the Capitol Hill riot. Uh, the stuff about the election and people that, Ted Cruz and others, who wanted the presentation of evidence... If a huge part of the country and it's not such a crazy thing to think that a lot of the country would have a problem with this. We went to bed thinking Donald Trump won the election. The next morning we wake up and it's, oh, actually, because of changes in voting procedure, uh, Joe Biden won. That's basically what happened. I I think it's understandable that a lot of people think oh, that doesn't feel right. And it's the it's the end consequence of all the changes and all the Democrat games they play, you know, with all the early voting and earlier and earlier and mail-in and all these things that they do, you know, why not just have an election that lasts for a year? The whole year, you can vote any time in the whole year. Well, no, because there's supposed to be a defined point in time when people come, when the American people come to a decision, that's the way it's supposed to happen. With some, you know, some uh, special exceptions for people overseas in the military or people that have some, understandable and clear need to vote of to vote absentee you know i voted absentee in 2008 i was in iraq so it was going to be really hard for me to get to a a polling center because i was in baghdad you know that was it wasn't going to be an easy thing to do uh so then we get to the judgment involved of some of these individuals the judgment that some of these individuals have uh ayanna presley who was the one who said that they must expel those in the GOP who are complicit in the criminality of the administration. Uh, here she is saying that, well, I'll just let her say it. Play five. These folks, I mean, they're just, um, it's criminal behavior, Don. I, I don't know what else to call it. Um, they have been complicit from the very beginning and uh, they're, willful criminality to carry the water for Donald Trump and these science denials, which allowed this pandemic to rage out of control. And then by refusing to wear masks, 
Um, I, I, this is criminal behavior. That's chemical warfare, so far as I'm concerned. And uh, again, this is exactly why we should be moving. And I was very proud to be an original co-sponsor of Representative Bush's uh, resolution calling for um, the expulsion of these members. They are unfit to serve. You know, Don, when they took us to the quote-unquote safe room, and I walked in and and saw that there was this contingent of anti-maskers in the room gathered, I immediately exited. So imagine in that moment the, the choice that I was making. And we were told as we left that space, you'll be on your own in an evacuation. And I said, I'll take my chances. Let, let's understand that, that she thinks that this is rational or reasonable, what she's saying. Most places all across the country right now, you can go into a restaurant, sit down, just like you'd be indoors here at the Capitol building, and people don't have masks on. Has Ayanna Presley flown on a plane or is she driving from Connecticut to D.C. every time she goes back to her district or is she flown on a plane? I'd be willing to bet she's flown on a plane. Does she realize that when she's on that plane that there are lots of people who are unmasked for long periods of time as they drink and eat and whatever? Ah, but but the it was an imminent threat to life and limb to be uh, in a room with people who are who are temporarily unmasked or not weren't wearing masks, refused to wear masks inside the Capitol. She says it's a form of chemical warfare. That's right. You breathing is chemical warfare now. This is this is who we're supposed to listen to about what is fair minded in politics and uh, a, a woman who is part of the legislative process. It's. This is what we're uh, going to be dealing with from Democrats. Did, did anyone in the room even have covid? Do they know? No, they have no idea. So statistically speaking, the overwhelming likelihood is that no one in that room had COVID and that nobody was exposed particularly in in any kind of close way. So why? Oh, because COVID is just a COVID is really first and foremost for politicians, a bat with which you bludgeon the opposition idea, whatever it may be. Find a way to make it about how they're COVID deniers or they don't. That, that's the whole point of it. It's, it's not actually a virus that has spread all over the world that we should all be thinking about realistic and honest solutions to deal with in a reasonable fashion. It's how can I use this as a political weapon against the other side? That seems to be the primary, the primary purpose that I see from at least the Democrats about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish uh, when they talk about COVID. Although, as I said, I, I believe the Biden administration coming in now is going to they're, they're, you, you either get on board or you don't want covid to stop. That's going to be the demagoguery that you see. Just just wait for it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You know, what we definitely shouldn't do at this point in time. Take a lot of advice about what the GOP should do and and what the next steps are from people who hate the GOP and who make money trying to destroy it. Do not take advice from your enemies. It's a very straightforward maxim. It's a very important way to approach life. Do not do not take advice from people that want to see you lose. And there are so many of them out there right now. Here's Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt runs Lincoln Project. Yeah. He goes on TV and he uses a thesaurus to use the big words occasionally. So he sounds like not the dumbest person on TV, but I think he might be. 
Play nine. We have a fascistic enterprise alive and well in America. We have an autocratic movement that's supported by 42%. And before we talk about reconciliation, we must talk about accountability. And we must talk about justice. And we must talk about the punishment for the violence done to the government of the United States. There are only two ways to win a fight. You can bring your opponent to submission or your opponent can bring you to exhaustion. When you think about losing a fight through exhaustion, you think about the United States and Iraq or Afghanistan or in Vietnam. When you think about submission, you think about what happened to the South in the Civil War. You think about Germany and Japan. And so our offer on the table for the seditionists is a fight where we will bring you to submission. This must be crushed. This must be annihilated. This illiberalism, this undemocratic moment must be met head on. I mean, this guy raises money to destroy Republicans and help Democrats, but now he's going to tell the Republican Party how it how it needs to reform. That seems like a bad that seems like a, a, a bad pathway to go down. He's not the only one. Do, do we know is, is Joe Scarborough? Is he is he a Republican or, you know, I, I'm sure he thinks that he should be president. But is he a Republican or what? What? I don't know what he probably probably an independent now. In the, when, when you're a turncoat Republican in the media and you want to maintain whatever lucrative perch you have, what you do is you say you're an independent. Uh, that guy, he used to work for Bush Dowd over at uh, ABC News. Who's, uh, he's one of the worst political analysts on TV. He just says dumb things all the time and is a jerk on top of that. He's, he's an independent. Uh, I think Scarborough, I don't know what he says he is, but he could very easily be in that mold. Uh, he, here he is. Remember, this is, this is somebody who used to have a show about how much of a Republican he was on TV. And now he's like, the GOP needs to just keep losing and losing and losing and losing. Play eight. Yes, people have to tell the truth. We have to get justice. But also uh, Trump's Republican Party has to lose in two years, has to lose in four years, has to keep losing until those with autocratic tendencies are driven from American politics for good. Got to get him out of politics. The autocratic tendencies in the Republican Party. That's what he's saying. Just. Does Joe Scarborough ever talk about the autocratic tendencies in the Democrat Party or, or no? Where do you think there's a greater risk of autocracy? Where do you think there's a greater risk of authoritarianism? The party that now has the entirety of the media and the social media giants doing their bidding that has corporate America in their back pocket. Uh, do you think that they're more of a risk to your freedoms or liberty or the party that right now is going through some very tough times because, unfortunately, we were in charge when COVID hit. I think if there was no COVID-19, if we hadn't gone through the pandemic, Donald Trump would have won re-election pretty, pretty handily. Unfortunately, that's not it's not the, the cards we were dealt. Um, now we have a Republican Party that's feeling as as weak as it has. As I said, this is the worst position the Republican Party's been in since 2009. So. We could say uh, in, in over a decade at this point, this is the worst place it's been in in terms of power. I'm I'm not sure that this is the worst place it's been in in terms of um, long term prospects, because we have had there were some gains among key groups in the last election that shows that with the right kind of conservative populist message, we can we can have gains. This was a very it was a a fluke of a year in politics in a lot of ways. It was very challenging 
Uh, so I'm not one to sit here and, and despair. I'm just telling you we, we got to get ready for what's coming because the, the Democrats, they only had they only had four years of Trump, but they completely lost their minds. And now their plan is to punish all punish everybody that was a part of it in whatever way they can. And to really erase uh, Trumpism from the, the political map in, in its entirety. And, you know, I was going to even I was going to play a, a soundbite from from Cindy McCain. And I, I, I don't know why. And I look, I've got nothing against Cindy McCain. And uh, why, why is why is she a political voice that we hear from exactly? I, I don't I don't get that, but I'll just leave it because um, the Romney McCain wing of the GOP, they really think that they're going to come back into power. And and I just don't see that happening. And if it does happen, it just means that we keep losing elections and Democrats get their way. But but we'll we'll be pat on the head by The New York Times. So that's nice. You know, the GOP is no longer a bunch of ruffians. That'll be our reward. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Only once during the nearly two decades long war in Afghanistan has an active duty combat member been pulled from the battlefront due to deaths of two family members in war. U.S. Marine Bo Wise is that man. After his brothers, one a Navy SEAL, the other an Army Green Beret sniper, were killed in combat, Wise was removed from the war theater, earning the designation Sole Survivor. He's got a book in a uh, book coming out, Three Wise Men, in which he tells this story. But we have Marine Bo Wise with us now. Bo, thank you for uh, for your service and your time. Hey, thank you for your service and thanks for having me on, Buck. Uh, so tell me this: what 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 do you want people to take a take away from your story? And, and I suppose for us to really understand that, you got to tell us how did how did all this come about? You've quite a quite a military family. Yeah, you know there was a lot to say um, uh, when we first got started, and uh, Tom uh, Saleo, my co-author, approached me, and he he really, you know, kind of told me his vision of what he wanted to do, and I told him the things that I had wanted to say, and everything just kind of synced up as far as preserving Jeremy and Ben's legacy, but, um, um, it, it became something much deeper. And, um, I, I learned to be honest, uh, let myself be human and uh, expose a few chinks in my own armor and hopefully an effort that we can, we can help other veterans, you know, you know, that are struggling coming off the battlefield as well. Um, so, you know, it, it, it all started, uh, for me, I found journalism, journalism to, uh, or journaling, excuse me, to be kind of a, a healthy coping mechanism because I, I just quite frankly me personally my personality type I can put ink to paper and let my heart out a, a little bit easier than I can speaking so um, having a such a patriotic professional co-author with Tom Saleo to help you know help me tell that story was uh, just detrimental but Bo, tell us some of that story how, how did you decide to go into the marine corps your brother was a, a marine sniper your other brother was a was a member of the united states navy seals tell us about this well uh ben was the first to enlist and he enlisted in 2000 uh prior to september 11th he just it was something that he talked about since high school and you know really ever since you know we were kids my mom you know had uh, a legacy of uh you know marine heritage her uncle her mother's brother being a uh, a raider in the pacific campaign and um uh, her great uncle being in um uh in argonne forest i if i'm not mistaken uh 
And, um, you know, so having that legacy and, um, you know, it, it just kind of sparked the fuel and uh, Ben just wanted to serve. So he enlisted Army Infantry. And then eventually, years later, after his first deployment with Green Beret, Jeremy had talked about SEALs since high school and college. And then eventually, when he was 27, the cutoff age for Bud's being 28, you know, it was, you know, time to time to do it or, you know, stop. So he quit medical school and went to Bud's. And uh, after just listening to them, I, I just got inspired. And I was in college and thought, you know, I, I really, you know, was just living vicariously through a lot of the stories they were telling me. And I was like, I've, I've got to make a path for my own and do something similar. And I eventually, uh, in 2008, um, enlisted in the Marine Corps and went infantry. And you, you did get deployed overseas. Tell us, tell us about that experience. I deployed to uh, Helmand province uh, twice. Uh, southern Afghanistan in the, the heart of Pashtun country. Uh, the the first uh, deployment was the invasion of Marja. For me personally, it wasn't nearly as kinetic as, as what I was hoping. It, um, whatever patrol I was on, the fight usually just seemed to be ahead or behind or left or right. And, you know, it just sometimes pans out that way. My second deployment was in Garmashir, very close to the uh, southern Paki border. And... Um, you know, and so my combat experience is, is rather minimal, especially in comparison to uh, to Jeremy's and Ben's. It was just uh, the, the culture and the climate, you know, kind of adapting to that. Um, but yeah. Tell me tell me about your your brothers. I mean, part of this book and we're speaking of Bo Wise, author of Three Wise Men. And this is described as as in essence, a, 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 a there's parallels to the story we all know from the, the very well-known World War Two movie, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, your brothers both both gave their lives for their countries in combat. Tell us. Tell us about your brothers. Uh, so they they both did uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, four deployments each. And that's that's just Iraq and Afghanistan. There were other deployments. And I mean, we could have gone on well beyond 300 pages. Um, if, if we'd included everything, uh, as far as the other countries, but, um, you know, Jeremy was, uh, he left the SEAL teams in August of 09 and he, uh, was, uh, very swiftly picked up by the central intelligence agency through the contract Z. And, uh, he was one of the, the, the GRS guys overseas at FOB Chapman in coast province, Afghanistan. And unfortunately he was one of the, um, the seven CIA officials that were killed uh, by the suicide bomber in December 30th, 2009. I was in Helmand province at the time. Um, I flew home and linked up with Ben and um, you know, we uh, uh, yeah. And you know, buried him and then swiftly went back to Afghanistan. And uh, after that deployment, we came home and just coincidentally, we ended up back in Afghanistan at the same time again uh, in 2011 and I came home later that year and Ben's battalion got extended and he was breaching a cave in a, a firefight in Balk province in a cave network. And he, um, uh, fought for six days. Um, after breaching a cave, he was shot multiple times in the chest, legs and growing. And, um, eventually he succumbed to his wounds on January 15th. And today is the, uh, the ninth anniversary of, of Ben's passing. I'm I'm very sorry for your loss, and and I, I think it's important for people to hear stories of this kind of of heroism and sacrifice, and those two things often do come together when we're talking about military service and combat zones. 
and we still have soldiers deployed overseas. We still have ongoing yeah. conflict zones. People need to know that there, there's a cost that's being uh, cost that's being uh, paid and, and burdens that are being carried by people like uh, the Wise family. And to that end, uh, please tell me a bit more about uh, Bo, about what it was like when you found this out and you got word from the, the now you, you've lost two brothers in, in combat in these wars abroad. Uh, what was the, what was the uh, initial sense you had when they were telling you, what, what was it that you were going to be, you, did they give you the choice of being pulled out of theater? Uh, you know, we, I didn't know for a long time. We had, I had just returned uh, from Garmister District uh, with uh, 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines. Um, I was with Weapons Company, CAT-2. And uh, which is a second combined anti-armor team. We, we just got back and um, um, I had ma- uh, married my beautiful wife, Amber, uh, right before the deployment. So we were just getting settled, settled into Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. And the phone call came in the night, the first one from my mom, that Ben had been shot. And that is all that we knew. It did not, from what we understood, it wasn't life-threatening because as you know very well, Buck, I mean, information comes in from, you know, guys that are sometimes still in the fight. When the information comes back, so it's, it's just incomplete. So we got everything in increments. So as the word started coming back to us, we realized that it was a bit more severe than we initially thought. thought. So we made adjustments to get to Germany when we realized that Ben was going to be transported to Landstuhl. And uh, Tracy, his wife, and I flew over there, and um, we got to be with him when he, when he, when he passed. And then... Um, the, I sent the whole family home and, and stayed behind as a guardian angel for, for Ben when he did pass. And uh, it wasn't until I got back to Dover that um, the uh, commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, General Amos, uh, was there. And he, he arrived and he uh, told my mother and father, you know, he's not going anywhere for a, for a long, long time. And it, it came as a gut check. And uh, at, I think at the time I was pretty upset about it. Um, just fearing, not just losing after having lost my blood brothers. I, I think I was most concerned about being separated from my brotherhood, my, my Marines. And, um, but I was allowed to stay in service for several years and I left active duty, uh, you know, four and a half years later in 2016 and, and dropped to the reserves and, uh, eventually just got out completely from IRR and everything else. Um, in March of last year, actually, it's about 10 months ago. Bo, do you feel like the, and we're speaking to Bo Wise, author of Three Wise Men, which is just uh, just out this week and tells a story of, of his service and his brother's service uh, and multiple combat tours in, in uh, theaters of warfare. Bo, it feels like the, the fighting that's going on overseas or even just the, the continued downrange presence that we have has really fallen out of, of most of the uh, the public's consciousness. We we talk about troop withdrawal maybe in Afghanistan. We're, we're down to lower numbers. How do you feel about the situation right now? Because there's less, you know, e- even I'd say four or five years ago, there was a still a real focus on support the troops, men also understand what they're carrying and what their sacrifices are as these wars go on and on and on. How do you feel about the the general American public's view of all that right now? 
Well, I would, like you said, Buck, I would encourage people to stay focused, especially with, you know, the political climate just being what it is. That's, that's its own beast, you know, I don't want to get into, but, um, you know, just staying focused and staying supportive of our, our, our men and women, our service members overseas, like, you know, and, um, you know, just stay aware and, you know, not just uh, on, you know, the national front, but, you know, local. And I, being out and not having been in the Eastern Hemisphere in just about a decade now, um, you know, when I come across these questions, I typically ask a Green Beret first just because they seem to be SOCOM's jack of all trades and have the most, I, I think, a very broad scope uh, as, as far as these type of things. But, yeah, you're absolutely right, and we just need to stay focused and supportive of uh, of our service members. Given the, if I could ask you, Bo, and, and we thank you again for your service and also the, the sacrifices and service that your, your whole family has made. What would you say to you if, 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 if uh, I don't know if you have children, Bo, but if, if you have a son and your son was getting to that age where, where he could think about, about serving and, and going down range and possibly being in harm's way, what would you say to him? You know, honestly, um, I would probably do something very similar to what my dad and my oldest brother, um, they were real, both brothers. I mean, everyone, I, I think, um, I was discouraged and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say discourage them, but, you know, make sure it's something that you really, really want to do before you do it. And, um, and just, you know, go deliberately. If, if you're going to do it, you know, make sure that you, you find the job that's right for you. I mean, there's gosh, I mean, 200 plus jobs, I think in, in the army and Navy each. And, um, you know, and I, I think that was the concern. I do have a son and daughter, and you know they're three and two. So, God willing, I never have to have that conversation with either of them. Um, but I would probably take a similar approach and say, you know, make sure this is really what you want to do. And if it is, you know, I'll support you wholeheartedly uh, um, in defending our, our constitution, our rights, and the American people. The book is Three Wise Men, Bo Wise. Bo, thank you for all you and your family have done for this country and for joining us, and best of luck with the book. Hey, thank you, Buck. You're a patriot, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We need anti-poverty programs, and we need a fact-based government that puts results over politics. The first part is core to what I've stood for since I started in public service. We need to make New York City the COVID comeback city, but also the anti-poverty city. As mayor, we will launch the largest basic income program in the history of the country, right here in New York. We will lift hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers out of extreme poverty, putting cash relief directly into the hands of the families who desperately need help right now. This is the type of move that our city leadership must make in this pandemic. Cash relief is literally the difference between a family eating and a family going hungry. It's the difference between being homeless and having a roof over your head. Andrew Yang, former Democrat presidential candidate, is going to be running for mayor in New York City, America's largest city, place where I originate this show from. And uh, let's just say that this will be this will be interesting. I'll tell you. Andrew Yang from all from all I've interviewed Andrew Yang before, so he he will actually speak to people uh, from the other other political uh, other political aisle or other aisle of this. You know what I'm saying? Other side of the politics stuff. Uh, He he is 
He's a likable guy. He's not a nasty, you know, ill-tempered, bad-natured guy, which these days in politics, I find that to be kind of a, a rarity among Democrats. Uh, I, I do think that generally Republicans are a little bit more just, uh, I'm talking about elected Republicans, are nicer. I think a lot of Democrats are very, uh, have very, you know, hair trigger sensitivities and, and are, are very quick to be, you know, snippy with people about about minor things. That's just my impression, but I'm usually right. Uh, but Andrew Yang is uh, is a pretty nice guy. But that doesn't mean that what he's going to do for New York City, if he becomes mayor and he will clearly be an improvement over Bill de Blasio. But I think anybody, I mean, producer Mark, I mean this you with zero government experience and not even yet being 30 years of age, you would do a far better job running New York City tomorrow than Bill de Blasio would. I think there's a lamp in my house that would do a better job than Mayor Bill de Blasio. Right. But like, it, it's not even close. I mean, you should, you, if, if it were Bill de Blasio versus producer Mark, producer Mark should get 99, 99% of the vote. We'll give 1% to people that, you know, just are crazy. Um, but so, so de Blasio is awful. I, I think Yang would be better. But what I think is so interesting is that there's going to be this move now, and he's going to try to apply universal basic income to New York City. And he's going to, uh, if he becomes the mayor, which this is a over, this is a year out, uh, but he would then start giving checks to people. But what's fascinating is New York City already has a very large welfare state and a lot of welfare programs of all different kinds. Uh, there's a lot of there's public housing and public health care and, and there's a lot of stuff. And he wants to expand on that. I, I think what we'd see is that it wouldn't really work as an anti-poverty program the way it's set up. And so the experiment of New York City being in, in some ways on the cutting edge of progressive policy. Well, especially if I'm not here, so then I don't have to worry about it. It'll be interesting because I think it, I think it would fail. I don't think it'll work. And this is a city that has been put through so much that you'll if there were good ideas and it boomed back, we would be able to tell. But this this is a circumstance where I, I believe that if Andrew Yang got his way and you would have this, you're just going to have more and more flight from New York City because who's going to pay for all this stuff? You know, for a lot of people, you have to think of time as money. Or money is time. And so when they're taking more and more of your money, they're actually taking more and more hours of your life. And you could be in a place where they don't do that because they have lower taxes or you could be here. What's the advantage? Now, I've mentioned before the Democrat plan is to then deal with this from a top down level by using the federal purse to uh, backstop blue cities that are, are hemorrhaging residents. But but this is the, the ideas they're putting forward. Uh, there's a part of me that wants to see Yang do his thing in New York. Because one, he's better than Bill de Blasio because Bill de Blasio is the worst. But two, you'll see that this stuff doesn't actually the same way we're going to figure out the hard way that a $15 minimum wage doesn't mean that everyone all of a sudden is out of poverty who works a job. You'll see that doesn't work that way. But we have to see it first. We'll see that a universal basic income doesn't end poverty somehow. Or even make even make a dent in it. But we got to see, I suppose, in, in the blue enclaves in the Democrat strongholds. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. 
time for Roll Call. Yeah, Roll Call. We're going off to the weekend, everybody. It's going to be a great weekend for everybody. Right, Producer Mark? Of course, we're always working for the weekend. Indeed, it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna have a great time this weekend, everyone. Forget about all the all the stuff that tense and gray and sad and bad right now in America. We're gonna have a good week. All of us individually, with our families and loved ones, we're all gonna have a good weekend. Those are your orders. Darn it! Eat something yummy. Watch something entertaining. Read something in, you know intriguing or inspiring or whatever. Or if you're producer Mark, check out the the hockey points or score uh, or I don't want to talk about hockey right now. What happened? The Rangers didn't I don't think they played last night. I'm just going to forget the game happened. Oof. This was your this was your Rangers against the uh, the Islanders I believe. Yeah, well, it was. I the, believe the we Islanders had a conversation certainly played a you, game last night, yeah. Do you, that, now do you want to tell us the difference between Islanders and Rangers fans? Well, right now Islander fans are happy and Ranger fans are very unhappy. Well, there, there we go. Ah, uh, all right. Well, you know, is, is there any other there other games this weekend? Well, they're playing the Islanders again tomorrow, and uh, there's football this weekend, so that's oh, that's fun. Okay, that's football. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll check check some it's of that the out. Playoffs, playoff football is the best. I'm deep into Pole Dark, which I'm very much enjoying, but I'm looking for other shows. I I may try. Um, oh gosh, I wrote down. I've got a show that I want to watch, but I have uh, now. I can't even remember what it was. I can't get excited about this halt and catch fire. I keep trying to watch it. It looks like it's pretty well done, but it's about a bunch of like nerds making computers or something. I don't know. I don't really care. I gotta find. I got, I asked people. I said, "Is it good?" Everyone says it's good, but I mm, I'm not I'm not sold. Oh, we're gonna make computers that are faster than the other person's computers. I don't know. I don't. It doesn't really. You know, it doesn't really blow my mind. That's all I'm saying. Uh, if you got any ideas for great shows or anything, that's a good thing to write into Roll Call. And remember to go to BuckSexton.com, Facebook.com slash BuckSexton. Check it all out. All right, let's go. Calvin, Buck, I'm listening to you tonight. I understand your thoughts on how to get back in power. I'd like to ask you a question. In the past, when we did not approve of the job our elected officials were doing, our only way to change policy was to vote them out. That option has now been taken away from us. We can't go to the judiciary for uh, recompense. Your idea of winning elections locally is nice. However, I don't think the Democratic Party will take their newfound illegitimate wins in the national election and use it locally. My fear is that it may take a revolution to set things straight. It would require the military to perform a coup. I'm not advocating for that. However, we truly have fascists that have taken over our government. What other way do you see of of resolving itself peacefully? Um, Calvin, it's not as bad as it seems right now. and I, I know that's trite. I know people are going to say, ah, you know, I can hear them throwing, uh, throwing the cold French fries that have fallen to the bottom of their car as they're driving, listening to the show. I know they're throwing it at the radio screen or whatever. But, um, yeah, uh, it's not as bad as it seems. We're, we'll, we'll get through this, and we're going we're gonna to be all right. You know, it's fine. The country is – see, because this, this is what the good news that I have for you. The Democrats are Democrats. And it's not going to change. They can't help but do Democrat things. And they're going to do things that enough people will see. And they'll say, oh, gosh, hold on a second. They've got really, really bad ideas. Right. They've got really bad ideas that they're implementing. So 
that's just one thing I, I'd, I'd want to put out there, right? That the Democrats, right now, they haven't yet had their way. So it's hard to lock in on how they're failing because they're not yet doing stuff. And I'm talking about the Biden-Harris. I know there's a lot of Democrat stuff happening, but I mean the Biden-Harris administration. They have not yet taken power. Uh, once they do, and we're all subjected to the wokeness and the left-wing insanity and all that stuff, then, then all of a sudden we say, okay, guys, Remember how they said it was going to be so much better when Trump was gone and this, that, and the other reason? It's not working out that way, is it? And that will give us our opportunity. That will give us our chance to start to mount a, a political response. But, but I understand there's also a letdown here. Let's, let's all be very, this is, the, this is the Freedom Hut. This is a place for, we're all, we're all friends and family in this, if you're listening to this. Even if you're a crazy lib who listens in just so you can, you know, write me angry emails or something. You know what? We'll, we'll even pretend you're part of the family, too. Uh, the, the Trump administration, there was... Now, I think a lot of people would say, to be fair, they thought they were going to have eight years. They only had four. But there's a lot of stuff that didn't get done that we needed to get done. And so there's also that frustration, that sense of letdown, that it wasn't even like we had every, you know, everything, there was all this stuff accomplished. And people say, oh, Trump accomplished the most. And Trump kept saying that. Well, a lot was accomplished in four years if you had four more years to solidify and to expand. But we're going to be honest here. I mean, what, tax cuts and regulations, I don't want to hear it, okay? That's gone now. That's all gone. That, that, that goes away. Uh, what major legislation? I mean, the trade deals. Yes, absolutely. Great trade deals done. No new or expanded or major wars. Absolutely. That's that's very good. I mean, there, I'm not saying there weren't things accomplished, but there's some. Did we get the wall finished? No, we did not. That's just a fact. There's no arguing that. It's just a fact. Uh, did we handle the illegal immigration problem in a way where we, we, you know, it's been we have figured out what the pathway forward for America is without just having amnesty for, uh, you know, 15 million people or whatever the number will be. Um, no, we did not. And now Democrats are going to go for that. They're going to go for amnesty. And you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that that didn't get done. And now we go to the other side. What are they going to try to accomplish? What are they going to try to do uh, now that they have power? And, and I can understand that can feel a little bit overwhelming right now. But, folks, this talk about revolution, everything else is this is it's a, honestly, it's it's just absurd and damaging right now. Anybody that's really thinking out loud about that in, in, a, in a major way, I, I think a lot of people are venting and they're using that kind of talk as a as a mechanism for just letting some of that political uh, frustration. It's a kind of catharsis for people right now. I mean, I can't believe. Look, I, I was saying in the beginning of this, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, Joe Biden is pre I just couldn't believe it that that was going to happen. And I'm talking about at the early stage of the primary. I mean, this guy, if Joe Biden can be president, it means any any random dude who has some name recognition uh, on the Democrat side could be president because you need no skills or or uh, or particular ability whatsoever. I mean, Joe Biden is in so many ways the ultimate mediocrity. And this guy is a president now. You know, say what you will about Trump. The guy's dynamic. The guy's had, you know, tremendous successes and some some failings in his in his career beforehand. He's you know, he's a salesman. He's got a vision. He's got you know, there's all this. 
There's a lot about Trump brings a lot to the table, love him or hate him. He brings a lot to the table. What does Joe Biden bring to the table? I mean, Joe Biden. No joke. You know, here I am just going to read all the speeches like this. I'm going to yell sometimes because it makes me seem authoritative. Now we're going to go back to a time when you might fall asleep during speeches. Heck, I might fall asleep during speeches. I mean, that, that's where we're heading toward now for our commander in chief. Get ready for it. But as I've said to you, he's just the, he's really just the puppet. I mean, he's the instrument for the implementation of the left wing agenda. So that is also out there and we need to be aware of it. Uh, Jamie Buck. Nancy Pelosi is moving forward with impeachment proceedings on the president because he supposedly encouraged a violent protest on the Capitol building. I believe what she's doing also encourages violent protests and she knows it. She is not going after the president. She is attempting to incite violence. Is she not just as guilty of what she is accusing the president of? Uh, Jamie, please write back in and give me a little more of of what specifically you're referring to or, you know, what's on your mind about this, because. I I, I don't what do you mean by Pelosi is inciting violence? I mean, in the past, she said there should be uprising. She doesn't know why there aren't uprisings. Now, she would say that's an observation, not incitement. So, you know, I I understand what their what their tone would be and what they would say about all this. But I just I wonder what exactly uh, what exactly Jamie are referring to. Give me a little more details and I I think I can give you a better response in, in the next roll call. Uh, Kelly Buck loved the show. Well, Kelly, the show loves the Buck. Oh, no, the, the show loves you, not the show loves the Buck. Sorry, the show loves the Kelly. If the big tech companies are private businesses that can do what they want and censor the president and conservatives, why can't we use this logic against them? If private businesses can do what they want, then private businesses should open right now. Um, well, Kelly, what they mean by that is that private businesses outside of an area that the government is already deciding for them has has autonomy and decision making. But I think what you're getting to is the larger point about how it's just the business just has a right to do this because we say, you know, because they say so is not enough in a whole lot of other areas. Um, You know, the government will say it's too much of a health risk. Well, now I think conservatives are turning around too much of a health risk to operate during covid i think a lot of conservatives are going to turn around and say it's too much of a risk to free speech and and uh, the first amendment for big tech companies to be making partisan decisions about what you can say same kind of regulation that the democrats love for all kinds of things conservatives are going to be using it now or trying to use it but i know some of you are saying how buck we don't have control i know i know we don't have control and I don't have an answer. And I don't think anybody really has an answer right now about this other than we we try to convince more and more of our fellow Americans of the righteousness of our positions, of our ideas, or the rightness of them. Oh, and righteousness depends. So, uh, Kelly, thank you. Th- Kelly, I guess, ultimately, thank you for having great taste in a radio or podcast program because you're listening to this one. Michael, Mr. Saxon and producer Mark, I have two points and I'll make them quick. First, I am probably like most of your listeners, blue collar, father and diehard American. 
How do I explain to my kids we have to trust our Constitution when we see those in control disregard it like a Walmart receipt? Second, thank you for your honesty and diligence. We've all seen the conspiracy and uh, side of this election. I hear more and more, but I also know if it doesn't get brought up on your show, probably isn't real and is just that, conspiracy. So thank you for the open and honest content you provide. You're doing all of us a service. Shields high. P.S. Ohio would welcome you back with open arms, and we have several hockey teams uh, for producer Mark to enjoy. Are there, uh, producer Mark, are there any good Ohio-based uh, hockey teams? Well, there's the Columbus Blue Jackets. They're okay. Blue? What is a Blue Jacket? Um, I think it's a Revolutionary War type of thing. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They have a, uh, a big cannon that they shoot off when they score goals. It's not an act. You know, they don't actually shoot the cannon, but it makes the noise. Yeah. Okay. I was always kind of jealous that the Patriots had the can, not the Patriots. The um, the Buccaneers had cannons for their football games. Remember that when I when I used to watch the Giants. Yes, they have a, a pirate ship in the stadium. That's where the Super Bowl is this year. Oh, look at that! It's a pretty cool stadium. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Hypothetical question for you, Buck. This comes from TJ. Would America have been better off with four years Obama and eight years of Romney than the eight years of Obama and four years of uh, of Trump that we got? Clearly, in hindsight, most Republicans don't look upon Rom- Romney that favorably, but much of perception has developed in the past four years of Trump. As someone who voted for Romney myself, and by the way, TJ, I voted for Romney too, Albeit not nearly as educated as I am now, I still think my instinctual answer would be yes. Eight years of Romney would have been better than the last four years of Obama and first four of Trump. Without expanding too much more on that, though, let's hear you. P.S. This is not an anti-Trump comment, but purely a thought exercise. I still think Trump was a good president, but like you, I think there are some blunders in his tenure that need to be revisited and properly critiqued before we can move on to the next chapter. Well, T.J., I appreciate that, and, and I think... I think that's just where we all need to be. We all need to understand that we've got to have honest conversations about what went right and what didn't during the Trump presidency, um, because now it's not about, oh, you don't want Trump to win. He didn't win. It's over. Right. So we can at least talk about, well, why didn't he win? And and what and uh, if we want to talk about election irregularities, that can be a part of it. But there's other stuff, too. And as for uh, eight years. Yeah, I mean, I. I I think that you could make the argument. Interestingly enough, Obama for the first four years were more, I think you could argue, more impactful uh, long term than his his second four years. Uh, Certainly from a legislative perspective, that's true with Obamacare. Um, But just as a thought experiment, uh, would would it have been better to have had eight years of Romney than four of Obama and four of Trump? I think it's impossible to know, TJ. And I, I appreciate that you're asking me as a thought experiment, but... You know, Romney would have been pretty wishy-washy on a lot of things. We can tell, right? I mean, look at what he says about BLM now. Uh, Romney would have been very, um, I think, very malleable as a Republican. And I, I also think that you would have had a, you, you would never, I don't think you ever would have had eight years of Romney. I think you would have had four years of Romney and then four years of Hillary. I think that's really the thought experiment. So then how does that make you feel? (laughs) So you got to answer that one for me, TJ. Caleb, Buck, love the show. You're absolutely right on the Capitol Hill riot. Political violence is abhorrent no matter what side does it. My question is concerning the GOP and if Trump did flat out lose to Biden, 
What are we supposed to think that someone as deeply unimpressive as Biden got 80 million votes plus uh, 80 million plus votes campaigning from his basement while Trump outperformed his 2016 campaign effort, especially since Trump performed better with minorities than any other GOP candidate in recent memory? Thank you for what you do. Shields high. Um, my question is, if the GOP and Trump did flat out lose to Biden, what are we supposed to think? 80 million plus votes campaigning from his basement. Caleb, the media is very powerful. We were in a pandemic year. Everybody was watching more news and more reading more stuff on the Internet and social media than ever before. I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, Trump got 75 million votes. Maybe Biden did get the 80 million. And I, I know no one wants to hear that, but, you know, let's let's prove otherwise. But we got to prove otherwise, not just say otherwise. And that's where we are. So, yeah. I mean, I know that's not the way I want to send you off the weekend. Have a but have a great weekend, everybody. Enjoy yourselves, relax, take care of yourselves. We got a got a heck of a week coming up next week. We'll be in it together though. Shields high.